There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She did not know. It was too subtle and elusive to name. But she felt it, creeping out of the sky, reaching toward her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Huh. Poor Louise Millard. Even here, her captivity must be ended by a force outside herself. Like Pinky from A Day No Pigs Would Die, this tension between the psychological and the physical worlds is what turns epiphany into... Fatality! Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell, and this episode finds us digging into Kate Chopin's short story, The Story of an Hour. Well, we have a short story here that was first published in Vogue magazine way back in December 6th, 1894, under the title then, though, of The Dream of an Hour. That may become important later. It was reprinted in St. Louis Life in January 1895, about a month later. Most of us know the famous work, and if you'd like, check out both a copy of the story and a reading of it in our episode 1.1, Supplement to this episode, you know how the story goes. Louise Millard, she receives word that her husband has died in a train wreck. Beside herself, she rushes into her bedroom. She locks the door. Her sister begs her to emerge, but all the while she's staring out the window and she's thinking for once in her married life that she is finally and absolutely free. Free to live for herself. At last, She steps out and walks proudly, victoriously down the staircase, just as the door opens and her husband appears. He'd missed the train, was alive after all, and Louise, suffering from a weak heart, dies on the spot. The doctors infamously claim that she died of a, quote, joy that kills. A terrifying and tragic little twist ending. It's been a great story to place in school books for generations, It's brief, easy to read, a fun and ironic surprise. We nod our heads, say, well, that was fun, but really dark. And then we move on to Edgar Allan Poe or maybe an O. Henry story next. Moving on quickly past Chopin's works was a tradition in her lifetime, too. Many of her stories, written mostly to raise money in order to raise her children, were simple character sketches of the local Creole people of the American South. But others, like this gem, made it into the even-then scandalous Vogue magazine. But male editors passed over her works frequently. Feeling beaten down after her now-famous novel The Awakening, from 1899, far too controversial for male publishers, often rejected afterwards, Chopin died without fame. It wasn't until the 1960s that she was rediscovered by a Norwegian scholar, Per Sejersted, who made her famous by republishing and writing about her works. Now, that was the advent of the 1970s, the height of the sexual revolution, and Kate Chopin, 
became a star, has been with us ever since. Historian Emily Toth says that the main question Chopin poses in her literature is, who has the right to tell a woman what to do, to think, to be? In this simple short story, however, I believe Chopin's answer may not be quite so direct. Let's find out. I read what I want. Theorist Louise Rosenblatt said that meaning is an aesthetic transaction with the text. She said that if we read efferently, we're just gaining information. If we read aesthetically, we are experiencing the text, the words, the sounds, etc. What does all that mean? They're fancy words. But basically, there isn't just one way to read. And we can read and study texts in order to get more knowledge. Physics books, essays which argue economics policies, restaurant menus. We read, we move on. Or we can read for the experience of the ideas the sounds, the emotions, the pleasure. The skills and approach to these two acts are different. There's some overlap, perhaps. But we can read a story or a poem for just its events, the words printed on the page, and report back what happened, objectively, correctly, factually. But this, of course, kind of misses the point. We enjoy a story because of how those events are arranged to make it suspenseful or curious, how a description might capture our attention or alter our mood, how a character speaks to us in some way that we call significant. Some writers are better at doing this than others. In general, though, what we talk about in discussing an aesthetic reading isn't just events, but meaning. It isn't objective, but at least partially subjective, you know, our interpretation, isn't correct, but somewhat personal, isn't fact, but persuasive or compelling opinion. Now, our discussion of this idea, which seems pretty obvious to begin, will probably get more complicated as we move forward. But by and large, when we read anything we call art, we are expected to read aesthetically, for a meaning which is not plainly demonstrated. The flower in a William Blake poem will be understood differently from one in a botany book. But the flower in a William Blake poem is also going to be understood differently from the flower in a Stephen King novel. Probably. Efferently, informationally, literally, they are all the same flowers. Aesthetically, will take a little bit more work. And that's what we're about here. But how we do this is not so clear-cut. It's not random. But there are many different ways, different paths perhaps, to find aesthetic meanings. My goal here with this story of an hour is not to give you the meaning, but to offer you some of these paths. Some paths will lead us to similar ideas. Others will take us in very different directions. You may like some of the paths we take, hate others, think we're lost on some. Let me give you a couple of examples of questions we might ask of this story that can definitely not be answered by an informational reading. 
Does Louise Millard rescue herself from her husband's influence? Does the narrator of the story think Louise has become wise or foolish? Is Louise's death tragic or is it a victory? The truth is, I'm not really fond of these questions because they offer a yes or no sort of choice. Better ones might be more open, allowing readers to create interpretations that I don't offer in the question itself. Like, what is responsible for the health of their marriage? What does it mean to say Louise has, quote, a heart trouble? Why hasn't Louise allowed herself to think of freedom before? To what extent must relationships compromise freedom? If all we do is read art for its literal meaning, yo, you know, that's a painting of a tree, there seems little point in reading it. If we read it aesthetically, art can become important to us, for all of us, but also personally. Historicism? This is why I will rarely make a lot of time for biography or history in our readings. Certainly, we can do this. There are a ton of websites and podcasts out there that will tell you all about Chopin's life. The publishing of her stories, things like that. Sites like Sparknotes, Cengage, Schmoop, others are all pretty predictable in what they tell us. But there's something interesting about those sites, too. They give us informational articles about aesthetic readings. Now, let's make sure we understand this. When we do not feel comfortable with our own subjective, personal, some might say deep interpretations, some readers will go to a website to see what the story really means. And those sites will tell us, I guess. I'm not saying to never use resources like these, but I am suggesting that doing so can mean that we are not getting better at aesthetic reading. I don't personally care a lot if you can tell me that the open window in the story is a symbol of Louise's potential escape. Not if you read it informationally on some website. But for every one of you listening right now, I do personally care whether you can offer me an interpretation or opinion on the importance of escape, or on how that window's description made you feel, or on how what Louise feels is still important for anyone feeling suffocated by their world. Now, I say all this in a segment called Historicism, so I'm about to turn right around and tell you that sometimes looking into history can offer some insights into a story or a poem. Well, of course it can. For instance, if we talk about train wrecks for a second, it might be important. We have a train wreck that's killed uh, Louise's husband, but in 1855, Chopin's father died in a train accident when she was five, and her mother became a wealthy widow as a result. Another large crash in 1888 much closer to the date of the story, demonstrates how lists of the dead are are reported. Another interesting historical connection, though, is how this story differs from that life event. Real life might have been a little too radical. Suppose that Louise's husband dies and doesn't come back, and Louise goes on to live the life of a wealthy widow. <laughs> 
Chopin critic Emily Toth, she's written a couple of biographies about Kate Chopin, says in, in her book, Unveiling Kate Chopin, that she had to disguise reality. She had to have her heroine die. A story in which an unhappy wife is suddenly widowed, becomes rich, and lives happily ever after? <laughs> that would have been much too radical, far too threatening in the 1890s. There were limits to what editors would publish and what audiences would accept. So what Kate Chopin did was publish a lot more conventional social stories, and that allowed her perhaps to be a little more daring later, but not so daring as to allow her heroine to survive as a wealthy widow. That would never get published. We can look into the history of Kate Chopin's own marriage, and we find that all evidence suggests that she had a very happy one. And a few weeks after starting this story, she wrote in her diary, quote, If it were possible for my husband and my mother to come back to earth, I feel that I would unhesitatingly give up everything that has come into my life since they left it and join my existence again with theirs, even though I would have to forget the past ten years of my growth. All this is to say is that our author, like all authors, is a complex, conflicted person. And I want to draw a caution to say maybe we should be careful about making quick and handy, neat and tidy parallels between a short story and the author's life. Sometimes we can be enlightened. Sometimes we can be confused. That said, sometimes when we look into history, we can discover something about the publishing of the story that raises new questions still. Back in the day. Okay, so I'd like to talk about a couple of, we'll call them editorial changes, that have been made in the story of an hour. Now, there's a couple of reasons why editorial changes might be made to a publication of a short story or poem, and we're going to talk about the impact of those, two which might actually be significant for the meaning of Kate Chopin's story. An editor may make a change because of spatial considerations. Back in the old days, newspapers had a limit to how big a story or an article could be on a page. And so they make some choices that are editorial in order to fit the publication requirements, the size of the space that's allowed. Other editors believe they have a better insight into style. Perhaps the writer does. Sometimes they do. And they make a change editorially to a story in order to strengthen it. Sometimes there's an accidental change. And we didn't mean it. We just misread something. We left out a word or added a word or something like that. Sometimes the change has an ulterior motive. In the story of an hour, let's look at two changes that have been made and what they might represent. The first comes about halfway through the story. Louise Millard is sitting at the window and she's got her arms outstretched and she's thinking about all the things that are going to happen for her and she's got her arms spread wide at the window. And then this line comes, There would be no one to live for during those coming years. She would live for herself. 
Now, right away, it's pretty clear what that meaning's about. She does, doesn't have to dedicate her life to someone else, as women often do, either to their children, their husbands, you know, their, fam- their broader families, that they live for someone, that their role is to nurture, to care for. Um, and they have that responsibility that's traditionally carried in Chopin's time. There would be no one to live for. During those coming years, Revelation, she will live for herself And the affirmation is she has an opportunity to choose her own ego, to choose herself as an independent person to live for. What a concept. She no longer has a a social obligation or a traditional obligation to sacrifice or give up, surrender her life to someone else. But that's not the only version of that sentence. That's how it was published in Vogue in 1894. But in 1895, when the story was reprinted, it was reprinted in the St. Louis Life and edited by Sue Moore. Now, Moore supposedly is one of Chopin's friends. And when Moore takes the clipping of the Vogue story and she gives it to the St. Louis Life version, she handwrites two changes. We assume it's her hand that did it. And she changes that sentence to read this way. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. She would live for herself. We just added a word. We inserted the word her. Here it is again. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. She would live for herself. This is a change, supposedly a change that Chopin wanted. Notice what the meaning might be. No one to live for her during those coming years, as if her life has been usurped, not as a responsibility as a caregiver, not as a responsibility to husband or children, but someone else has been living her life for her, choosing her pastimes, her behaviors, her habitudes, her likes and dislikes, choosing how to value it. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. Now... She's going to live for herself. And there's a liberation uh, motif, which is quite a bit stronger than merely the idea of, I am going to uh, not have any responsibilities. What we don't know is which one of these Chopin really wanted. We presume she wanted the her, or at least I do, because it was handwritten as a change. Why was it left out? In the original, was it because the author had a different idea in mind? She made the change like a second draft? It could be. Could it be that an editorial change was made without her permission? Maybe it was an accident? Either way, we're left with two slightly different readings. And I can hear you say, okay, that's not a big deal. I mean, they're both liberations. They're both freedoms from something. And if they're freedoms from something, then why should we worry over much about this? We have a woman who's kept, she's, she's in a state of captivity from some patriarchal power. Why do we care exactly what subtlety uh, difference it makes? Not a big deal. Perhaps not. But I did say there are two changes I want to talk about. The second one is in the title itself. The story is called The Story of an Hour, but originally... It was printed as the dream of an hour 
in both original prints. Only later did the scholar Sayerstead make a change into the story of an hour. Now, what difference does that make? Let's think about that for a moment. The title, The Story of an Hour, story, simply identifies the genre that we're in. We're about to tell you a story. It's a narrative. It's a short one. But it is a story that you will become familiar with. It, you'll read it for its characters and its plot, and that's what it is. The dream of an hour says something far more focused about its content. In a story, we read for what happens, beginning, middle, and end. And we're excited by the end because that's the climax or the conclusion, or in this case, the twist of a story. The dream of an hour pushes the focus somewhere else, doesn't it? It suggests that, you know, the story is going on there, but I really want you to look at the dream that Louise Millard has. It's a waking dream. It's an illusion. It's not real. This idea that she could be free, body and soul free. It's a dream. It's a feverish delusion. And why wouldn't it be? For any woman living in this condition is only able to dream. There is no reality where the freedom that Louise Millard is imagining exists. She didn't even need to have her husband, perhaps, come home alive to discover this. It is still and equally a dream. Dream on, sister. There will be no freedom for you or for any women in this culture. I'm going to get to that in some more detail uh, in a moment. But notice what the change is made. Now, this change was made without the author's permission. This was made editorially by Sayerstead after Chopin's death. The dream of an hour is erased, and we say, instead say, let's not talk about this as so cruel a focus, that this is merely a dream. Let's give us the opportunity. This is a story, and it's a tragic story, but a story nonetheless. If Sayerstead did this in the 1970s, we do not want to send a message to the second-wave feminist movement of the 1970s that there is nothing for you in reality. This is not a dream. There is a possibility for a free and open life. And so the change is made, perhaps, dream becomes story, much less a statement and just more an announcement of genre. We focus on the notion of the tragedy of the ironic ending, and we call it a day. Now, these two changes suggest a larger question, and it's one that we're going to be wrestling with, I feel, a whole lot as we go through some of this literature. What version is the true version, the real version what do we make of the meaning of a story when the story or the poem has changed over time? Do we go with the first draft, the second draft, the final draft, the first published draft, the draft is reseen by the writer as it's been edited by someone else, the draft that's been expanded into the full director's cut? Which version is the version that we take meaning from? And what do we do with the meaning? Am I wrong if I read the story of an hour and miss the discussion of the dream and what statement that might make? 
Am I wrong if I read The Dream of an Hour and someone says, well, it was never published, well, it wasn't printed that way, or everyone understands it to be the story of an hour. In fact, Chisnell named the episode Story of an Hour. If he was so hot over this idea that it was going to be the original dream of an hour, why did he name it that way? Is it because I'm trying to cater to people who know the story more popularly? We have a question about which text do we build meaning from? Modernism. So, is this a story of Louise Millard discovering some personal ambition for freedom, or is it some kind of a selfish delusion that she suffers from? Should we understand her desire as humble or immature and egotistical? I don't want us to think of literature in terms of an either-or. I mean, sometimes an author will seem to offer an A or B choice, and very often critics will look at a piece of literature and say it is A and not B. That either-or, that two-choice approach always strikes me as problematic. I think some of the greatest literature somehow slides between those two. We need to consider subtext, that aesthetic reading I was talking about earlier, what happens beneath the words. Now, some people read literature and they say, oh, it's really too hard. You see there's all these puzzles or secret codes and things that you're trying to draw up from underneath that say hidden messages, and that's all nonsense. The idea is there. It's just requires a little more reading on our part than less reading. It's present. It's not hidden. Why would an author hide a meaning? The author wants the meaning to be found. But there are some meanings that are not simply the words on a page. They're more complex. So as one of the rules of approaching literature is be cautious when someone offers you just A or B, either or. I mean, only an amateur writer would offer a character that has a single motivation, a two-dimensionality. Louise Millard has more complexity, and we will find it in that subtext, in the connotations of diction and image. This is what the modernist critic does, the one who focuses on the text itself. Let's see what we find. First, we need to address the big irony in the room. The joy that kills. This is one of the more famous lines that Chopin has written in all of her works, and it's easy to see this as irony, the O. Henry-like twist, the twist at the end that says, oh my gosh, not only is she dead, not only has her husband still alive, and she died as a shock of it, but that nobody understands why she died. They think she died because she was happy that her husband was there. I want to talk about this joy that kills in terms of irony, but maybe more than one level of irony. On the surface, reading it literally, we get the idea that she is so overjoyed that her physical heart couldn't take it. She dies from excitement. You and I know that's not true. It's not really 
joy to find her husband alive. They misread it. Her sister Josephine, Bentley, her husband, the doctors, they misunderstood. What's interesting about our understanding of the death is that we automatically understand the physical heart to also mean the emotional heart. That it wasn't joy to find her husband alive. In fact, she's heartbroken to find her husband alive. And that this is an emotional, psychic, mental break when she discovers that he is alive. I want to suggest that it can go further, though. Maybe it is her delusional joy of freedom that's ruptured and kills her. She might be just as deluded as the others in the house. When her delusion, her error in thinking, is brought to light, she realizes how foolish she is. That's what kills her. I mean, did we really think that this story was going to end with her living out her life and happiness? When you started reading it, and you reached the window, and she's thinking about freedom, did you say, wow, that's a nice twist. She's going to live out her life as a fairy princess. No, no, no. You and I both knew something was going to happen. Remember what Emily Toth said, Chopin couldn't let her heroine live. So either we are left with one of two things. One, we are smarter than Louise. We know she's fooling herself, and that happiness cannot be hers. She is foolish. But we are also smarter than society that doesn't see its own wickedness in that case. Or two, we are smarter than Louise, and we see the tragedy as a big accusatory finger pointed at society that won't let her live her life. But, of course, we are smarter than society that doesn't understand her. Which one is it? And I want to make room for the idea that it could be both. We are smarter than Louise. We see more than she does. But we're also smarter than the society of her times that says, oh, this captivity is tragic. We see that the larger institution of marriage is keeping women trapped, or at least some women. But we also see that a woman is foolish to expect to live in a society like that freely. We don't have to choose a yes or a no, an A or a B when we interpret. We can find a lot of levels. We can find that both meanings happen at the same time. Now, why am I suggesting that Louise is foolish? You may be saying, no, you've gone too far. I, yes, she may be a little deluded that she thinks she can live on her own, but it's not that awful to expect freedom from society. I'm not disagreeing. But let's ask this question. Is there any text, anything in the story, that demands that the narrator agrees with Louise Millard? Look at how the marriage is characterized. Who describes it? Louise Millard does. Look at how freedom is described. Who describes it? Louise Millard does. Look at the characterization of her husband. Who describes him? Louise Millard does. Well, almost completely. Who describes her marriage as a powerful will bending hers in that blind persistence with which men and women believe they have a right to impose a private will? Louise Millard, who describes her husband's face except 
as a face that had never looked save with love upon her. Louise Mallard does. In every case, the characterization of her husband, of her marriage, of her relationship, of her freedom, is hers alone. The narrator sits kind of in the background watching her think these things. So the ideas of her and her captivity are hers. Outside the world, the doctors, her family, they describe her as having, quote, a heart trouble. So whose failure is it to love here? Now it's gotten interesting. It isn't the husband's failure to love. It isn't the husband's failure to treat her well. It is her failure to love, to find that joy in the relationship. Now, I'm not trying to point a finger back at Louise. I'm simply suggesting that maybe this is a little more complicated than we imagined. She has a heart trouble, not just a physical one. She doesn't know how to unpack herself emotionally. She doesn't know how to reach out to others emotionally. The first thing she does when she hears of her husband's death is run and lock herself into a room, not reach out to her sister, not reach out to her friends. There's more that Chopin offers us. It is at that moment that Louise Millard undertakes, quote, a suspension of intelligent thought. What? Yeah, if we're not careful, we're going to skip right over that reading. A suspension of intelligent thought. She stops thinking. Maybe we have a woman who has fooled herself. Later on, when she's thinking of herself as victory, you know, the goddess Nike coming down the steps and declaring victory, I am free. We also have a sentence that goes like this. There was a feverish triumph in her eyes. And she carried herself unwittingly like a goddess of victory. Ah, now that's not Louise Millard characterizing it. That's the narrator. This is not Louise Millard describing herself as feverish and being unwitting. This is the narrator saying, look at this woman. She's out of her mind right now. She is unwitting. She doesn't understand it. She isn't the goddess of victory. She's carrying herself like a goddess of victory, she thinks. And she is feverish, deluded. Finally, I want to go back to a comment I made earlier about the title of the story. What does it mean if this story were called The Dream of an Hour? It's not real. This is, again, a delusion, a false hope. So there is another irony leveled here, and that is that our Louise herself is fooled. She has a limited understanding of the world, and that limited understanding she allows free reign. She believes a romantic idea that she will somehow come out of this as a free and independent woman, when really She should know better. The Close Analysis To explore this idea a little further, I'd like to go into a section of the short story that 
you've already heard a little bit about. I'm going to come back to it and play with it a little bit. This is a close analysis of a passage. A close analysis basically means I'm going to zoom in on some of the text and really look at it specifically in depth. It's a technique that's common to a lot of teachers, literary critics, and others, but it can offer us some insight into how a writer uses language and what we can learn from that language if we slow down just a little bit to see what's going on. It's the passage that you've heard at the beginning of this episode. There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She did not know. It was too subtle and elusive to name, but she felt it creeping out of the sky, reaching toward her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Now her bosom rose and fell tumultuously. She was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her, and she was striving to beat it back with her will, as powerless as her two white slender hands would have been. Now, we learn a lot about this idea. We know what's coming. It's this idea of being free. She's going to allow it to bubble up and well out of her. Free, free, free. But right now, we're just getting the idea of it from her. So, let's make a couple of observations. First, whatever this feeling is, this freedom feeling, it's from outside of her. It's an it, a thing that she's afraid of but she felt it. She was recognizing this thing, and she's afraid of it. Louise has not been harboring resentment and suppressing her captive rage all this time. She's not a woman that's been walking through her marriage going, oh, I can't stand this, this is awful. It's an idea that's coming from out there somewhere, and it's coming in here. At least, that's how she's thinking about it. So what is this outside presence? Is it outside of her, or just metaphorically outside of her conscious thought? But it is connected to these alive spring images. The trees, the wind, the birds, the calling of the salesperson outside, which by contrast suggests a great deal about how she understands her own life. If all the spring life outdoors where this idea of freedom lives comes in to her life, It's her life that she starts to recognize, or perhaps has always known, is contained, limited, dead even. Does she dare allow herself to let it in? Notice in this passage how forceful it is, this will to freedom. It's even nature-like, natural. It cannot be denied. She was striving to beat it back with her will, (laughs) but there isn't much power for her to do that. She is literally powerless. Also, finally, she was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her. She recognizes it. She's known it before, literally recognized to know again. She may have once understood this about herself, eh, perhaps when she was single, but had forgotten it. Myself, I think of those childhood moments she must surely have had, that we have all had, when neither parent nor partner was present to reduce our freedom to absorb, to breathe, to experience. Oh, yes, we love them. But 
Still, whatever this idea is, if she accepts it, and she can't help but do so, it is foolish. And this is why this small suggestion, this is the moment of change right here. This, then, may be the moment of tragedy. Not her death on the staircase, but her moment here at the window where she actually experiences these ideas that cannot be reconciled. A freedom promised by nature, a society, and her own life, which doesn't dare let them in. So we talk about this idea as a spiritual liberation that she's feeling mirrored to a physical or sensual imagery of the window outdoors and the beautiful nature imagery that's there. Let's talk a moment about the role of nature. Remember, it is something which is rising from the outside world of nature. It's a mysterious force of some kind. But where is it not coming from? It is not coming from society, its traditions, its history, its male-dominated discourse. We'll talk about that later. Personal dreams, creative ideas. Even if we think that the it, the freedom, is an outside, or rather an outside her conscious thinking, it becomes a romantic dream which cannot be realized. Like Jay Gatsby's in the Fitzgerald novel, The Great Gatsby, they each believe in something that is impossible to have because it does not exist in this world. It's almost like a romantic idea. And I mean that in the terms of romanticism, this idea that nature is gorgeous, the human emotion and spirit need to be free and unfettered, completely unbound. And yet we know the society itself does nothing but restrict and confine and chain. The only difference is that in the 19th century, the Romantic era, Romantic poets found the optimism often to talk about this free and unfettered existence of emotional joy. It was the 20th century or the Industrial Age, the modern era, where we began to find literature and thinkers who said, there's no room for this. The imagination will get run over by a freight train. And (laughs) almost literally... That's what happens here. A few Greeks. What's the tragedy in a story like this? A lot of thinkers about this story will say something like, well, the tragedy is that her husband's still alive and she dies. Well, that's sad. But is it tragedy, really? Is the tragedy that she wasn't understood? Is the tragedy that she had just discovered joy, or thought she had, but finds that she hasn't? To get at that, let's see if we can understand what tragedy actually is. And we're going to spend a moment with this. We go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, Aristotle, who talked about tragedos, uh, the idea of tragedy and what it required. Aristotle believed that tragedos gave readers or viewers of plays, in his case, 
a sense of catharsis, a release. We like watching or reading about sad things because it makes us feel vindicated that yes, this is what the world is like. Yes, that's justice. Yes, the world will run over us. We identify with it. And then we feel purged in some way. But for Aristotle, not every death is tragedy. Some deaths are justice. Some deaths are pathetic. Some are just sad. The thing that makes it tragic is a moral ambiguity in our tragic victim. Our tragic hero must be neither a villain nor a virtuous person, but a character somewhere between those two. If the villain dies, we say, well, he deserved it, so that's not a tragedy. If the perfectly virtuous man dies, well, we make them a martyr, or we say, well, that's, that's really sad. The tragedy happens when you and I, as readers, we can identify we are neither villain nor virtuous. We're looking for someone who isn't perfectly good and whose failure doesn't come by some depravity or sin, but it happens because of some error or frailty. We say to ourselves as readers, I'm, look, I'm not perfect, so I'm not that saint or king that died over there in that play. And I'm not a villain, so it's not my sin or my vice that does it. But we're all human. We make mistakes. It is the tragedy that comes by error, by frailty, what the Greeks called hamartia, the idea that it is our humanity which creates our failures, the mistakes we make. Does Louise Millard have a flaw? She sure does. If it's only the external events that harm our character, that can't be the thing to bring about her downfall. Something with her, something within her, has to do it. Are we talking about the delusion? The feverish, unwitting idea of victory? Is this Louise Hamartia? that creates the tragedy in this story. Hey, check this out. There are a number of amazing works that speak to some of the same ideas I brought up in this short story. Here are a few that you might want to look at. By Kate Chopin herself, Ripe Figs. A very, very short work, but it will give you a very different idea of how we measure time, meaning, in ourselves. For a structural fun, take a look at the Twilight Zone episode, Time Enough at Last. It's actually a short story by Lynn Venable. John Young's Our Deportment, or the Manners, Conduct, and Dress of a Refined Society. Guy de Maupassant's short story, The Jewelry. Excellent parallels to this uh, particular short story. Susan Glassbell's Trifles, and also A Jury of Her Peers, Mary Wilkins's A New England Nun, Judy Brady's I Want a Wife, an amazing, sarcastic uh, approach to this uh, short story. Each of these will inspire us to see the story in a new way, and hopefully each of these will create a new dialogue for us to have. New Historicism 
This is a theory that's going to appear in larger ways later on in this season and other ones. But for now, I want to go back to the history of Kate Chopin and just mention these important points. There's always the potential that a short story or poem or work of art is reflective of the author's own life. Consider one of the themes of this work, the potential for us to author our own lives, and then setting that authorship aside upon discovery of our husbands still living. How much of what we've talked about today did Chopin understand of this question? Was her framing, her mapping of her own world, limiting her potential to escape a binary, freedom versus captivity? Do her other works, The Awakening, for instance, answer the question? We must be careful what we make of her. She wrote, Women forever will whine and cry, and men forever must listen and sigh. Chopin is not a liberator, but what we do say now of her is an interpretation as well. Literary Misillusions There's one interesting illusion that goes on in this short story, and I'd really love to draw attention to it. Chopin writes that Louise carries herself like a goddess of victory. Now, I know that the casual reader will likely look at that and say, oh yeah, you know, she's winning. You know, that's, she's, she's like a goddess in charge, a, a person who wins, a person of independence, of power. But I'd like to point out a couple of things about uh, the victory reference, which are kind of intriguing. First, victory is another name for the goddess Nike. We know that. And uh, at one point was merged later in Greek society with the goddess Athena. Both were virgins. And the word virgin originally meant someone independent of man. It wasn't a sexual idea. It had nothing to do with purity and chastity, per se. It simply meant someone who walked on her own independently. So this is not a reference to say Louise wins. This is a reference to say she's coming down the stairs in a feverish triumph, like a goddess of victory, like someone who has found independence from the world of men. Now, Kay Chopin was raised Roman Catholic. She was top of her class in a school of nuns. She was a skeptic and a debutante, for sure, but there was no reason for her not to know this. And that's even hardly the point. The fact is, the illusion is there, that she sees the independence of herself from the patriarchal society. But this is a feverish triumph. She is unwittingly carrying herself down the stairs like a goddess of victory. This notion, this harmartia, this frailty and error that she makes is that women could ever be independent from men. So if we didn't see it in the rest of the text, we can definitely see it in this illusion, this reference, that so many of us misread and misunderstand. The idea that she carries is monstrous. I will say also that victory in Greek mythology is not moral, is not good. It is a creature akin to force and strength. So there's nothing about winning 
or independence, which makes it virtuous. Those are not values that are attached to victory. Make of that what you will. A personal reflection. I'm uh, wandering out in a nature preserve here and along a trail which is fairly well marked. I know it fairly well. So far, the walk has been in safe territory. But I do see around me here and there a, kind of a fork along the way. Small trail leads back into some houses over there a ways off. Another seems to be just a trail for animals. Deer, maybe. These trails wind for miles. Others can wind for days, years. I might never learn them all, map them all, connect them all. Who could, so long as we keep writing and talking, reading? After all of this, you are more than entitled to ask me what I think about Kate Chopin's story, why I chose it, what we should do with it. Certainly a small, tight, open story, and it was an easy choice for me to launch the podcast, our first episode ever. And it lends itself to a number of themes and approaches to reading that I know we'll revisit with some frequency and significance this season and beyond it. There are ideas I'm drawn to. What is the nature of captivity and personal power? How significant is the difference between these in terms of physicality? Our bodies, perhaps, or of psychology, intelligence, of economics, of class. What is it that we're trapped by? How are we dependent upon others as wardens or as liberators? How do we navigate the changing conceptions of freedom while we work in a culture of others? If freedom isn't an absolute, then our alienation, you know, otherness, a suspension of intelligent thought? How do these questions work on me as an educator? In a classroom with students, amidst screams of patriotism during various political demonstrations, with William Wallace and Braveheart, is there a freedom which is not freedom from? All of this requires a negotiation between false binaries, false either-or propositions, doesn't it? There is neither complete freedom nor complete surrender to power. How do we do it? Perhaps some other writers offer some clues. What Kate Chopin has done is start us on a set of paths, and we could take any number of them. I might turn right while you turn left every now and then but I imagine our paths will often cross nonetheless. This is our first episode, but as we wander, more and more connections will emerge. Follow the path as we create it. The episodes are numbered, after all, or as themes and ideas emerge any way you wish. But here's what you can imagine. We have a lot more to explore in terms of these theories, these ways of reading we need to look more at irony, at aesthetic and close reading, at the authority of a text, of tragedy, and of hamartia. 
But we have some far-reaching texts ahead of us, some fairly popular, and some I know every listener will be unfamiliar with. Right around the corner is a short medieval poem called Fowls in the Frith that is already available on our website. Down the trails of peace are essays by Montaigne, short stories by Chimamanda Adichie and Ursula K. Le Guin, poetry by Andrew Marvel and Desiree Bailey, and some ancient tales from cultures long ago. Oh, and some truly unexpected pieces. This isn't a podcast about classic Western literature alone. Oh, no. It can't be. Asking the classics to walk freely down the stairs ignores a literal world of literature with whom they must interact, to whom they have a responsibility, even an accountability. For those looking, you'll find that our website has longer episodes. I've cut a number of chapters from this version. Resources for teachers and students. And a number of other trails that wander out of the realm of podcasts completely. Explore it. And if you feel compelled, subscribe or join the new community. Your support will help bring our discussion on reading to more people. Find us at waywordsstudio.com. That's Waywords Studio with two S's in the middle. Wander with us and grow with us. See you next time. Music for the Waywards podcast is by Randon Miles. Chapter headings by Natalie Harrison and Sarah Skaleski. The Waywards podcast is a production of Waywards Studios. Find us at waywardsstudios.com.